Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Well, hello there. Welcome to the podcast in which we discuss all of the ins and outs of the independent music world, whether it's punk, hardcore, indie rock. I don't care what it is, as long as it's in small, sweaty rooms, has been, uh, you know, derived from this whole beautiful DIY thing that we call DIY. That's a little redundant, but you get the point. I am here with a cool, cool guest. His name is Adam Marino. He plays in a band currently called Attempt Survivors, which you need to drop the episode immediately right now and go listen to Attempt Survivors. Really good stuff. But he also previously played in bands like Airtype 11, which is a uh, oft-overlooked sort of post-hardcore around the same time as like Orange 9mm and Quicksand and that sort of stuff. And then, uh, or maybe a little bit after that, but you get the point. And then he also plays in the recently reunited legendary screamo band, Seisha. And for those of you that are living under a rock, they, Seisha, have announced four reunion shows. I'm fairly certain it's four in New York City. And uh, they've sold them all out. It's incredible to watch the sort of attention that Seisha has gotten. And I know uh, specifically from many of the band members that they're just like, this is wild. I can't believe this. But anyways, Adam is a music lifer and he is a very creative individual. So uh, yeah, had to talk to him. And plus he lives like an hour south of me in San Diego. So I was like, oh, this is even cooler. We didn't do this in person, but um, you know, that's, uh, that's what we're doing. But you are here to correspond with the show, right? Maybe you want to do an email. You can do that at 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I accept all of those emails and will respond to you accordingly based off of your needs, whether it's guest suggestions or uh, anything else, frankly. Also, I am going to be in the United Kingdom at Outbreak Festival. I'm incredibly excited to be going there for some live podcasts. I will be announcing that on the social feeds soon enough in regards to the schedule. But if you're not familiar with Outbreak Fest, Outbreak Fest, let's articulate that appropriately. Um, 
It is a long-running music festival in the United Kingdom. Amazing punk and hardcore bands. I'm just really excited. So there's a little talks stage that uh, myself and uh, some other people are going to be hosting little chats with people. And I'll be releasing those episodes at some point in the future on this podcast feed. But shout out to the entire Outbreak Fest team for thinking of me and uh, bringing me over there. I'm very excited. And if you're a listener in the UK, come say what's up and visit the festival and all that sort of stuff. You can easily Google it, Outbreak Fest. It'll pop up. Anyways, uh, you can also leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and uh, that helps the show. I know every podcast asks you that, but like, please just do that for me. You know, a little favor. I do this uh, week after week for you for free. So <laughs> maybe I'm guilt tripping you right now. Sorry, that's a little heavy. Anyways, let's talk to Adam. Like I said, Attempt Survivors is his new band uh, coming out on uh, Iodine Records. They have a single up on streaming platforms now, they have a pre order going. You can check that stuff all out, but I, I highly, highly recommend it. I've heard uh, all of the Attempt Survivor stuff that they uh, have out, and it's really, really compelling stuff. So check it out. And uh, yeah, here's my discussion with Adam. I first got exposed to Seisha through kind of the the mythos of the band <laughs> as I started to kind of, you know, get into that whole screamo scene. Like I'm 41 years old, so I definitely was around for, you know, Orchid, Reversal of Man, saw those bands. But then you guys, you know, predated that by just a few years. Right. And I always was captured by the idea of the, like the rareness of the vinyl and even the CDs where it was like, oh yeah, like, to try to find Sasha stuff like you can't find it right <laughs> but something that impressed me as well was like the you know how pro you guys sounded without intentionally trying to be pro at all especially from the recording perspective because usually stuff of that era sounds like it's you know garbage cans being thrown out a hallway and so I, you know I, I'm sure maybe it's kind of a, a big question to start it off with, but you know, how do you reflect on sort of the the timelessness of the band and the fact that you know people still continually bring it up, even though you guys were only around for a couple of years? <laughs> um, I'm I'm constantly shocked by it when it does get brought up. Um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm really proud of the fact that we made something that um, has had an effect on people, and you know, it, um. I don't know. Yeah. It's just weird. Like, you know, when, at the time when, when we were a band, you know, you don't think about those things in the moment, you know, you're just like, this is what we're doing. And, um, we like what we're doing and you, you know, you, you, I guess you hope other people dig it too. But, um, you know, during that time, it was just very much like we were playing shows at ABC No Rio and in front of like, you know, 25, 30 people. Um, and, and that's kind of where it was. I mean, I don't think, I think when I was in the band, um, I think the biggest show I ever played with the band, there was maybe like 80 people in the room. Um, so I never saw any, none of us really saw any like huge shows at the time. And, um, you know, but I think over the past 25 years, uh, you know, things it, with the help of the internet, things get discovered and, um, and it finds a new audience. Yeah. And I think too, with the, the fact that, recordings were you know memorialized in the sense of it does sound 
you know, Rod has all of the intense emotion that is put behind it, but again, it doesn't sound like it's, you know, recorded in a bathroom with one microphone. And I think that also helps kind of elongate bands, lifespans, because anybody can dip into a recording and then listen to it and be like, oh, actually, that like, okay, I see where they're coming from. Right. Well, um, with, with the record, um, we, we very much, um, you know, we were fans of like 400 years and, and uh, Sleepy Time Trio and, um, you know, label mates like Closure and the States of Seeds. And those bands had all, um, I'm not sure if actually Sleepy Time had done, but the other three had recorded um, at, uh, with Jeff Turner at WGNS Studios in, in, in D.C., and we just liked the way that those records sounded. Um, for me personally, like I love that 400 years, uh, Suter LP. And I just always loved the way the guitars sounded on it. Um, wasn't my favorite drum sound, but I just had, I thought it had a very distinct drum sound. Um, and I was just such a huge fan of that record. So when we were talking about where we were going to go, um, it was kind of a no brainer. Like, you know, like I said, our label mates had, uh, on mountain had gone there and we liked their records as well. Um, so that's where we, uh, we ended up and, um, yeah, I, I still, I still really like the way that that record sounds. I mean, obviously there's things I hear now that make me cringe and I'm like, Oh, I wish I would have gone back and, you know, uh, redone that part or, you know, maybe we uh, did a, another take of that or whatever, but it, you know, it is what it is. I mean, we uh, we recorded that record and recorded and mixed that record in I think two days. Um, so it was, as one does, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's so long ago now that like I've had so many recording experiences since then that were the, the complete opposite of that. You know, um, so I, I you know I look back and I'm just like, wow. Like we, I don't think we were very prepared to make that record at the time, but. I think we captured what we did and, and maybe that's what is appealing to people is like maybe hearing that kind of energy and, you know, the mistakes or the little, like, you know, the nuances and tempo or whatever it is. It's just, we recorded that record live in a room together. I mean, I think besides the vocals, there was maybe like one guitar overdub or something and everything else that you hear on that record is just us in a room playing. Right. Yeah. And I completely agree with you, especially at, you know, during the, mid to late 90s like uh, there's so many stories of seminal records be being recorded in such a short period of time just because i think on top of all of that the experience of many you know engineers producers whatever you want to call them were looking at these punk and hardcore bands and being like like yes you could have some context for punk but once you started to you know separate into all the subgenres they were just like this sounds like noise. What the hell are you guys even doing? <laughs> so like, let's get them in and out of here as quickly as possible. Right. I mean, it's kind of like, a, I think with Jeff, he was just getting an influx of uh, bands that were, you know, kind of doing, you know, in the same scene or whatever, like as, you know, I guess like Don Fury was getting in the 80s with, you know, New York hardcore bands. It was just like, oh, that's the guy you go to. Yep. Um, and I, I guess maybe Jeff was getting a little bit of that in the in the late 90s. And I don't know if he was necessarily a fan of that music, but you know, it, it all, it only takes one band, you know, to do it. And then, you know, another band hears that record and goes, Oh, I like that. I want to do that. And it just kind of snowballs from there. So yep. um, I don't, I don't think we ever talked to Jeff about whether he was actually into the stuff he was doing, or it was just kind of like, yeah, it's just another band coming in and I'm getting paid to do it. And, um, you know, I, I, I can speak, I 
think I could speak for everyone saying that we got that vibe that it was just kind of like we were just a band that was just paying for some studio time, you know? Yeah, that, well, totally. And especially the, you know, hand to mouth budgets that, you know, I use the word budgets in air quotes. It's not like anybody was coming to the table with like, oh, here's like two grand. It's like, well, I got $1,500 and maybe we can record from eight, eight, eight at night until like three in the morning or whatever. Right. Just fit you in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't <laughs> even know what the budget was for that record. Um, one of the oh, other I'm- guys probably does, but I'm sure it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't much. Totally, totally, yeah. Very meager at at best. Um, And kind of putting the the focus on you individually, uh, where were you actually born and raised? Because I was trying to just understand that uh, by doing some research on the internet and wasn't able to find that. So where'd you come up? Uh, I was born and raised in Queens, New York. um, Okay. In an area, I basically spent my time between an area called Fresh Meadows, which is right in between Flushing and Jamaica, That's where my grandparents lived. That's where my mom and aunt grew up. Um, And and then we lived part-time there. And then we also, uh, part of the years that I was there, lived in in Jamaica proper, kind of like right next to St. John's University. And the drive from Fresh Meadows to Jamaica is like under 10 minutes. So it's pretty much the same area. Right, right. And with that family structure, like you were talking about, like was uh, was your dad in the picture? What did the household look like that you were growing up in? Um, my parents divorced when I was about three years old, so I really I grew up with my mom and my aunt. Um, I lived with them, you know, from that point forward, um, and then I saw my dad on weekends. Okay, and he lived on Long Island. Got it. Got it. And did you have any brothers or sisters? Yeah, so I have uh, I have an older brother and an older sister. So my dad was married three times. So from his first marriage, he had my older brother and older sister. Second marriage had me, and then his third marriage, he had my two younger sisters. Got it. Yeah. So he was he was really uh, you know taking swings at the bat, so to speak. Right. He, was. <laughs> he definitely was. <laughs> on, his, on his third marriage, he you know he was with her um, for forty. 40 something years. Yeah. That one stuck. Yeah. That it, one stuck, yeah. It, it is interesting. Cause I do think that, uh, I'm, I'm speaking from experiences. My father also went through, uh, three marriages. It is interesting when you get that, you know, deep down the line of, of marriages and, you know, them dissolving at some point, the third one, generally speaking, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm settling down. <laughs> I understand right. what I'm doing here now a little bit better. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think probably age has a little something to do with that. You yeah. Know, you had your, maybe your wilder years when you were a bit younger. And then as you get older, you kind of settle, settle in a little bit more, settle down. Right. And so being kind of the, I guess the proverbial baby of the bunch, what were, you know, were you spoiled to death or what was the, you know, was your, was, was there a helicopter parenting or was it kind of just, you know, sort of the uh, typical, you know, maybe 80s, 90s child upbringing of kind of, you know, doing your own thing um, with minimal uh, parental supervision. Oh, no, my mom was super, super overprotective of me. Nice. <laughs> she was, uh, you know, I was I was her only child. And, um, and, you know, she was very much kind of like, wanted to know where I was, what I was doing. Um, but again, like you said, it was also the 80s and 90s. And a lot of the terms or you know, things to look for just weren't around at that point or weren't even looked at. So, um, you know, my mom and aunt, they, and my grandparents, um, you know, they raised me, um, and, you know, definitely I wish I had a little bit more freedom. Um, but 
I had a great childhood. I can't complain about it, you know, and the things that I wanted to do as I got a little bit older, like, you know, when I was in like that kind of 12 year, 12 year old, 13 year old, and I was skateboarding and I would like, she'd be like, you know, I'd be going out with friends in the morning during the summer. And then we would take the train into the city and like, she didn't know that, but I was, that's, I was doing that, you know, I was taking my own freedoms as I got a little bit older. Right. Yeah. And I, I think with that idea too, being, you know, so close to the city, there is that idea of freedom of movement in ways that most other people don't have that experience with, because it's either you drive a car or you walk, but in New York, there's, you know, a few more, op- I mean, of course, riding a bike as well, but it, the fact you can dip into public transit relatively easily at a young age, it, you know, opens up the world a little bit more. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we were, you know, buses everywhere. Um, the area that I grew up in is actually, there's no um, subway right there. So you have to get on a bus or skate or walk or whatever to get to the train. So like the closest train would be like a, you know, 15 minute bus ride from the area I grew up in. Got it. Got it. And what was your, as you started to, you know, go through school and start to develop some identity, uh, did you have kind of a, a, a life path, so to speak of, you know, Oh, this is what I could do for a career. And like, did you care about school? Where was your, your head at as you were going through that? No, not at all. I mean, I, uh, I mean, I guess music was the one thing I cared about from a really early age. I mean, I would say from like, you know, the first time I picking up an instrument of any kind at around like 12 or 13 years old. Um, not to say that I was like, I have to be a musician, but it was the one thing that I truly enjoyed doing. Um, and just music in general, listening to music, going to concerts, like everything re- revolving around music was the one thing that I truly, truly loved. Like, I played sports as a kid, but never lasted long with any of it. Um, I just didn't like it. I was not athletic, really, except for skateboarding. Um, You know, skateboarding and music were the two things that I really enjoyed. Right. Those were the constants, as it were. Yeah. And with the introduction, because I know that you had spoken about in other interviews where it was, you know, you were, uh, you you kind of, in my opinion, uh, reverse engineered it where, because normally people that pick up bass, it's usually the idea where it's like, oh, like, you know, this person's a good hang. Like, they really can't play guitar. So here's two less strings. Like, <laughs> you yeah. know, maybe you could figure this out. But you played guitar and then, you know, you uh, went, quote unquote, backwards <laughs> to playing bass. Um, it, w- was that kind of just the fact that you felt more comfortable with bass? Like, what? how did you kind of gravitate towards more of that instrument than guitar? Even though I know you played guitar, obviously, in some of the bands you played in. Right. Um, at, well, guitar and bass actually came into my life roughly around the same time. So they were always happening um, at the same time for me. I was, you know, I was playing them both. Um, it just happened to be that when I started, um, you know, trying to get a band together, um, it just started with guitar. So, um, like, the first, like, the first real band I was in was Seisha, Um, and I played, uh, I was one of the guitar players in that band. But, um, prior to that, I had played with a couple of friends and I had played guitar in that band. And we did like one battle of the bands at their high school. Um, and that was the extent of our live music career. And we like, you know, we recorded some stuff on a four track, but, um, it, yeah, it was just that I started with that. And then, um, when, 
Aerotype 11 was happening and they were looking for a bass player. And I just loved that band. So I just uh, learned their songs on bass and that's how that happened. Right. You're like, I got this guys. No problem. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And so where did the more independent music strain get introduced to you? Cause I mean, like you said, music was always kind of a, a part of it. When did you get introduced to the things that your parents and maybe some of your other peers were not listening to? Uh, I guess the more, I guess the independent stuff, you know, my brother gave me all my early stuff and my mom was always listening to music, but that was obviously like more, you know, classic rock and then just stuff on the radio. But I guess the first time like independent music came in was, um, a friend's older brother putting uh, playing hardcore for me at, at their house. So, um, it was like a friend of mine that I would skate with his older brother was always listening to, you know, he's involved in the New York hardcore scene. Um, and this is like late. 80s, so probably around like 87, 80, 86, somewhere between 86 and 88, I was like, got introduced to New York hardcore. And then he was also playing the Smiths um, and the Jam and, you know, stuff from the UK. And so I was kind of getting a lot of that stuff from him um, and just being over at his house all the time and just checking out this stuff. Um, so that's, that was my first introduction to that world. Got it. And was any of it just because, I mean, me speaking from a West Coast perspective, the you know, New York City hardcore scene, I was always loomed large and there's no way you could get around it as far as you know, getting in, introduced to bands of that nature. But obviously it always had that uh, you know, tough or sinister overtone where it was like, oh man, the real stuff's coming out of the streets of New York City. Like, did you get, get kind of a, a sense of that as you started to get into that? Or was that just kind of like, yo, this is hard. I really like it. Not like you would have said that at, you know, age 13 or whatever. But <laughs> No, but it, no, it's funny you say that though, because I remember, um, I remember him playing me like uh, Cro-Mag's Age of Quarrel and Agnostic Front. And I remember just thinking that it just sounded scary. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't that I didn't like it, or, or that I immediately loved it. It was just kind of like, it was really interesting to me that like you can get a, a feeling like that just by listening to something, you know? So I was definitely like, um, I was interested in it, but it also felt like something that I was like not ready for in the, at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's funny, only through that, you know, perspective as you get older where it was like, Oh yeah, like I listened to this, but I understood maybe like four percent of it. I just liked the fast guitars or fast drums or whatever it was that attracted you to it initially. I just liked that it was also so different from what I was listening to. You know, it's just completely, um, you know, even even listening to like say Anthrax or Metallica or whatever, you know, and then hearing uh, hearing Chromags, it's like you you know you can obviously. Uh, look at them and go, okay, well, this is like guitar based music, but it just feels completely different from the other thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, this could not sound more like from a different planet. Like they're using the same instruments, but holy moly, what is this? Right. Yeah. And were you immediately kind of taken by the idea of playing in a band as you started to experience more, you know, shows and obviously less concerts <laughs> that maybe you went to prior to that? Uh, was that always the idea as you started to attend that? Yeah, I mean, I fell in love. I mean, I've said this, I've told this before, but like my first concert was um, 
Bon Jovi and Skid Row at Nassau Coliseum. And I just remember like walking through the tunnel, you know, to get to your seats and seeing the stage and the lights and just being like, I was like, wow, I want to do that, you know, kind of thing. Um, that was, you know, from that moment, that was pretty much just like, yep, I want to play music. Uh, this just looks cool. This looks fun. Um, but I didn't really know how to like, how to get there, how to do that. It was still, still very young, still just picking up an instrument. So it seemed pretty far fetched, but you know, I was very intrigued by the idea from that first concert. Okay. We are here talking about independent music, but you know, what's also important band merch. And you know, what's also important rockabilia.com. And the last thing that's also important is using this promo code 100 words or less that gets you 10% off your entire order. What I love about Rockabilia, all officially licensed merch, the bands get paid, ships to you lickety split. You can also find over half a million items in their store. They have so many different things that you could possibly wrap your head around, all different styles of music. I don't care what you're into, you will be able to find the piece of merch that will sing to you, you'll buy it, you'll wear it, you'll buy some gifts for your friends and family, and you'll use the promo code 100 words or less for 10% off your order. I love them so much. Thank you for your continued support, Rockabilia, and buy more band merch. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray. Did you immediately go into NYU or what was the progression there? I did not go to NYU. I was the one guy in the band that didn't go to NYU. Ah, got it. Okay, so you weren't the cool art kid that went to NYU. No, I'm just no, no, no. I went to, uh, I, you know, I never, school was, I'd never really enjoyed school. So um, as soon as high school ended, I went to community college for like a year, just thinking like I should do this, but I didn't really want to do it. I just felt like I might be making some people in my family happy if I make the effort. But after a year, I just was like, this is, this is not for me. Um, so I, uh, I just worked for a while and then, you know, and then the band stuff started happening and would be able to have jobs where I just, you know, worked, they let me go on tour, come back, work, you know, you know, the cycle, <laughs> you've heard it before. Absolutely. Well, especially with the idea of people building their lives around 
you know, touring. And it's just like, I just want a job that I can return to in between tours because that, you know, it's not like I'm making money off of a tour. Right. 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 Just something that can sustain me while I'm home and allow me to go back out. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you were playing in Seisha and, you know, the, the, that ostensibly, like you mentioned, was kind of your first, you know, quote unquote, real band that actually put records and shows and stuff. Um, when uh so as you got into the band and you started to experience even just those you know weekend stints because i mean clearly you know seisha wasn't you know touring 300 days out of the year um did you immediately like the travel portion of playing in a band i did um i liked getting uh you know i had traveled before just like as far as like family vacations and and you know it wasn't like i only was ever in new york but to get out without family and to, you know, get to play, you know, travel and play music. I I loved it. Right. Right. And with the, uh, with, with that of idea, like as you, I mean, even though you were only playing shows, like you said, 20 or 30 people and, you know, you were having a lot of fun with it and there was some sense of maybe a little forward momentum, how did the kind of business side, and I use maybe air quotes there, the business side of like working with record labels and booking shows and stuff like that, did you like that portion of it as well or no? Uh, well, back then it wasn't really a thing. You know what I mean? Like when Seisha started, it was just kind of like put out your own stuff until, you know, like as far as like the demo and seven inch and stuff, we were, you know, at the time when uh, we were doing that stuff, I was actually interning. Uh, at T, uh, TVT Records in the city, and um, I was basically using their uh, tape machines to dub the Seisha demo after, like my you know, my internship was done. I would like stay after hours, and I would bring all of our blank tapes and the and the CD ROM, and like you know, basically make five copies at a time on their tape machines. Um, so I was kind of like using the system for our good. Sure. Um, but so we were doing our own stuff. And then when it came to putting out the record, you know, the, it came out on mountain records and um, working with Chris was just super easy. It wasn't like there were no like contracts or anything. He's like, I like your band. I want to put out your record. And we were like, okay. And it was that simple, you know? Right. Um, so I didn't really have to start dealing with like the business side of things for, you know, until later down the road. But, sure. Um, yeah. and, then I, and I even think at that point, you know, um, like an aerotype, you know, Artie was kind of like the guy dealing with all that stuff at the time. Um, you know, obviously we would make decisions together as a band, but like he was kind of like the point person, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess it just wasn't until later that I just kind of taking on, started taking on more responsibilities. Like, when Aerotype, uh, after breaking up and reuniting, like I kind of just started uh, taking the wheel of like, hey, I got us a show. Hey, we're going to do this. You guys down for this? And it was just more like on me to do it. Yep, that makes total sense. And with the, uh, you know, the fact like we were kind of talking about at the top of this episode of the idea that, you know, Seisha lingered in people's consciousness when did you kind of, I guess, notice that where it was like, you know, obviously the band, you know, broke up and clearly you've done a lot of other things musically. When did that 
statement started to get echoed back at you where it was like, yo, man, like, you know, I, I, I love your band, but like, let's, look, can we talk about your first band? And you're like, really? Like, people pay attention to it? Uh, I don't know when it happened. I mean, it's been, it's been happening for, I don't know, I guess maybe maybe 10 years ago is when I first started noticing it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess when you first, um, it might've even been like, I saw something on YouTube. So someone sent me like a band in like Malaysia doing a Seisha cover, you know, or like, or maybe it was like a photo of someone with a Seisha tattoo. And it's like, really? You know, like, it's kind of like, yeah. yeah, like what, when did, how did that happen? Um, you know, so yeah, I guess just like little things that people have sent me over the years. And I guess it started around 10 or so years ago where I would start seeing those things and just, yeah, just not understanding like how that happened or why that happened. But, uh, I mean, I think it's, I think it's super cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, with, uh, AirType 11 specifically, that you guys always existed in my mind, like a band, like a six going on seven where it was, you know, bands that were always, you know, working, putting out music, touring, but, you know, never caught the eye of the, you know, industry as a whole. I mean, obviously you released records and the, you know, you, you guys did your fair share of things, but never caught on the way that, you know, maybe your contemporaries did. Um, you know, considering that all of you guys in the band are still friends, like, there's no animosity there. But uh, was there, I, I guess, kind of friction as things were going on? And, you know, maybe your your friends were obviously, um, you know, maybe getting bigger opportunities and stuff like that. Uh, no, I think, I mean, I think there was a sense of like frustration, you know. Um, I think w- the problem with Aerotype at that time was that when we were existing, like, uh, I guess, you know, quote unquote emo scene was just so big, you know what I mean? And bands like Jimmy World and The Promise Ring. And um, I just think they fell under a certain, you know, they they kind of worked well together. And whereas we always felt like uh, we were too, we were too like rock, too much of like a rock band to fit into the, into that world. But then like amongst like the, I guess a more rock world, we were too emo. Like we just never fit in, you know? Right. Yeah. You, you guys were too, too rock for the post hardcore and then, you know, not enough emo for the emo scene. Like you right. just always flirted exactly. all of those between all of those scenes. Right. Exactly. So no one can really like know what category to put us in because we, I guess because of the bands, you know, we, you know, the, the scene we'd come from, um, the bands we were in, no one can like make sense of it. You know, it's like, you should be this, but you're not this. So we don't really know what to do with you. Um, and then, you know, and then I think Artie being as outspoken as he is, you know, uh, I think, you know, sometimes it rubbed people the wrong way. And we were just, we were just trying to have fun with it, but um, it, it almost felt like you weren't allowed to, you know, make some comments or, or come off, come off with a little bit of like arrogance or something like that, because it was like, no, that's not cool, you know? So it, it was just always something that was kind of getting in our way, whether it be, um, you know, not fitting into the scene or just ourselves getting in our own way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, and that, that also was, you know, a very interesting time because it was, you know, before a lot of that scene broke wide open from a more mainstream perspective. And so there were a lot of bands, like, I, I mean, I always randomly think of, you know, Jay June as an example as well, where it's like, there were so many bands across the country that all fell into this 
you know, rock emo world, but people didn't know exactly where to put them. And then, uh, you know, because of that, a lot of bands, you know, didn't get the shine that they deserved, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of bands, you know, we, we skirted that line of like rock emo, but then there were some bands that I feel like, you know, were kind of on the border of a more like indie sound, but then maybe they were like a little too heavy or, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit more like acoustic based. So they didn't like fall into like a straight up, like indie sounding band. Yep. For sure. For sure. And, and especially too, like you said, because of the scenes that you had come from, you know, punk and hardcore, like those are initially where you're going to first start playing your shows at. It's not like you're going to, you know, be opening up for bands that you have like no connection with. Right. And while you were, you know, doing all of this and, and being, you know, very active in touring and, uh, you know, working jobs here and there, uh, was there a, a vision of kind of, you know, rooting yourself more to like working, uh, you know, alongside of music, but then also, you know, being able to be creatively active. Like what was the kind of the hustle as you were trying to figure out maybe something that was a little more, I guess, stable or, <laughs> or sustainable. Uh, I don't know at that point, like, you know, toward the, Airtype 11 really, really gave it a go. I mean, like we were, we were adamantly like, we were trying to make music our, you know, that's what we're doing. Um, living in New York, that's obviously pretty difficult because New York's an expensive city. Um, but we were just, we were really going for it. And in the end, you know, um, we ended up calling it a day because, you know, uh, Phil, our guitar player, just, just, you know, he had had enough of it. He had enough of the van tours and sleeping on floors and he just wanted to get a little bit more settled. So, uh, we ended up breaking up and then, you know, Artie and I basically, and, and Ty, who was the last drummer of Era Type 11, um, of the original lineup, he, um, with the three of us just were like, well, we're going to just keep moving forward and start a new band right away. And then within six months of starting that band, we got signed to a major label. So it was just like, there was no, I mean, during that time, like music was the only thing we were thinking of. Right, right. And was that Godfire's Man or was that Instruction? That was Instruction. Okay, yeah. Instruction was such a weird, I, I mean, I, I'm telling you, you existed in it, but it was such yeah. a weird, just from a, you know, public facing perspective of just like, there was all of these amazing people that were combining into this final product that you know, felt like a, it it was filtered through, like, clearly the major label was being like, okay, we can mold them into this thing by using the pedigree. Like, I'm just sure there was, there was so much in that stew that was difficult for you guys to kind of get your maybe original vision and intent across, or maybe I'm just misreading the whole thing. No, um, I think, I think instruction started with the best of intentions and, um, you know, like I still think that the demos <laughs> that we made, uh, you know, with friends in New York, um, I think I like those better than the, you know, major label record we put out, you know, that Bob Ezrin produced, you know, um, it's, and it's nothing against him. It's just, you know, you all of a sudden, you know, you become part of this, um, you get put into this world where it's like, you're expected to spend the money to make the product and the time. And I just think things over time, like you can spend too much time on something, right? It loses the immediacy. It loses the original feeling. 
And I think that's what happened with instruction. I think there was just too much. Um, it's like, okay, you have this huge recording budget and you have to pick this A-list producer and, um, you know, just spend all this unnecessary money when we could have made, I feel like a more, a more like raw sounding, uh, record than we did. Sure. <laughs> and I, I, I always put, I mean, even though instruction, you know, clearly did put out a, uh, record, you know, it, it fell into this, you know, like world's fastest car, like all of these things that, you know, had so much going on for it at one point from a, you know, industry buzz perspective, but then once it came to getting the project in that state across the finish line, it, you know, either didn't happen like world's fastest car or obviously did happen, but maybe like you said, not with the original intent. Yeah. Um, it, it, that, you know, it's just this, everything was very frustrating about that because we had worked so hard when we started that band to, uh, and spent a, a lot of our own money, you know, um, going over to the UK. I mean, we had done like four UK tours back to back, like just basically living over there and um, just making a name for ourselves with no label support, nothing is pre getting signed. And we had such a, like a good buzz going and like press and everything. And then we come back to the States, you know, play South by Southwest, get, you know, the whole major label kind of getting courted by a couple of labels and doing the, you know, it's like the most cliche shit, like just, you know, doing showcases for labels at the Viper Room in LA and, um, and then eventually going, okay, well, this is kind of what we wanted, right? You know, and you, you, you pull the trigger, you sign the deal, and then it just, it does not go the way that you hoped it would go. Mm-hmm. And it's, and everything that you kind of, that we worked toward in those, uh, in that beginning time of pre getting signed, just, it just felt like it just got wiped away. All that like hard work just kind of got wiped away from us because, you know, we signed the deal and then all these decisions now, like we're not making every decision. The decisions are kind of getting made for us a lot of the time. Right. Like a, we know what's best scenario. Right. It's like, well, I know you've put all this work into the UK and the smart thing to do would be to continue to support that and like maybe try to you know, get you bigger over there or, you know, break you in Europe in general. But they were like, no, we're going to focus on, on the States and which I understand right there in a, they're a label here. Um, but it would, we were just like, no, but you don't understand. Like we look what we have going on right here. Why don't we try to hit this first? And it was just like, you know, everything down to like, what should the first single be and what should, you know, just every decision, what video, you know, which, uh, which video do you want to like director do you want to go with all that stuff? Um, you know, it just felt like at the end of the day, they make you feel like you're, uh, have a, a say in it, but really that you don't. Right. For sure. It's like every decision was this long drawn out battle that by the end of it, you probably are just like, I just want this over with. I don't even care. (laughs) Right. It's like, I just want, I just want the record to come out. (laughs) Just don't shelve the record. At least give it a chance, you know? And then, and then it does come out and it's like, um, you know, it's a very weird time, right? Because I think, I think that instruction record came out in like 2003 or 2004. And it's like where you're still worrying about like CDs, right? You know, this is pre, I guess, more, um, you know, stuff like iTunes and Spotify and all that. So it's like, now it's like, where's your record? How many copies of your CD are getting shipped to the store? And we were out on tour when our record came out and, and it's like people were coming to us saying like, yeah, like I saw you guys and I went to go to the store 
to um, to buy the record and they had one copy and it was gone or something like that. Like the record store only got like a few copies of it and it was gone. So it's like we just kind of were dead in the water from the day our record came out, you know, because they just didn't put the what they, you know, the promises that we were getting from the beginning when they wanted to sign us, when they actually had us, it was just kind of like all that went out the door. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu yeah for sure it unfortunately that uh that story is uh not 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 too uncommon within the major label world yeah but i mean for you to be a a front row of that especially because you were coming off of so many different um you know bands and music projects and experiences and everybody was coming to the table with a lot of uh you know they, they were firing at a very high caliber it was just a shame that you know it didn't and plus, too, you were also just like inches away from, you know, new metal slash, you know, all of that. Like there was so much in that that rock world right. that no one knew where to put it. Right. And at that time, that's what was ruling everything. I mean, was that that whole new metal world was just like that was our touring options. You know what I mean? Besides like Queens of the Stone Age and the Foo Fighters, like unless you were getting on tour with them, the, your options were um, as far as like in like the bigger, you know, uh, touring situation were to be on tour with bands like Papa Roach and Puddle of Mud and, you know, all of those bands. And, you know, it was just kind of like, well, you can go on tour with Papa Roach for six weeks or you could not go on tour. And we were just like, well, we don't want to sit around. We want to play shows. We want to get our name out there. And, so we did a lot of these tours that were um, super fun, but you know, w- is it anything that uh, are any of these bands bands that I would listen to? No, but you know, when you're in that situation of just like you're either 
we wanted to show them like any tour you're going to give us, we're going to pretty much jump on because we want to be a working band and we don't want to sit at home. Right. <laughs> what was the, I guess, the most uh, incongruent tour experience that you had? It doesn't even have to be specifically with instruction, but where it was like, I mean, it, it may have been fun. Like the people in the bands would have been cool, but it just did not make sense musically. Uh, I don't know. I mean, all of those, I mean, every one of those tours I felt like did not make sense. You know, I think the one tour we did, uh, you know, obviously all the stuff we did in the UK was super fun. And like those bands felt like more from the same world as us that Mm -hmm. we toured with over there. Um, but then, you know, the stuff that we were doing, uh, here in the States, it just all felt wrong, you know, except for sure. like we, we did one tour with helmet when they first got back together and that was super fun. Um, so yeah, that one felt like, okay, this actually feels like it lines up with, with us a little bit, but then everything else was just kind of a joke, you know, but I, that said, like we had so much, like we had so much fun on those tours, you know, like touring with corn for two months in arenas, you know, that's, it's, you know, w- instruction and corn don't sound anything like each other, but we had a great time. Like it gave me the opportunity to play in arenas. Yeah, for sure. Right. It's like, even though the, you know, experience may have not uh, netted you positive in regards to fans or finances or whatever, like you were just afforded opportunities that you would not have had before. Right. And that's what you, I mean, I think just to not drive yourself crazy in those moments, you're like, well, you know what? Um, I'm playing music. I'm getting paid to play music. I'm playing these big fun shows and let me just have fun with it. Because if I really start thinking about everything else, I'm just going to drive myself crazy. It's very true, especially, I mean, that whole, you know, argument, especially in creative pursuits where someone is looking at like the hourly wage of whatever they get, you know, make out of the creative project, or it's like, I, I could have gotten more out of, you know, a, working a job at Starbucks or what have you, just because like, <laughs> that's a like right. guaranteed. And, but I put like 9 million hours into this thing and it finally happened. But is this actually quote unquote worth it from a financial perspective? Probably not. No, the answer is almost always going to be <laughs> no. But, totally. But, but, you know, you can at least say I'm doing what I enjoy doing. Exactly. Right. That's not, that's not always the point, obviously, the, the financial ramifications. Because no, no, like you sure. said, you'll drive yourself crazy if you go down that, that, that thought process. No, I think if any musician <laughs> looks at the, fin- <laughs> the finances of getting involved with music, they, you know, if they were a sane human being, they would say, yeah, I'm not going to do this. But, you know, uh, musicians don't think that way uh, as a whole. No. Yeah. That's not the point, especially when you're talking about the world that we have come from. It's not like there is any thought process put into the fact that, oh man, I'm 16. And I want to put out a demo. It's like, that's just what you do. Right. What you, yeah. do. you just want to, you just want to get your music out there. Right. Right. And so, you know, as you started to, um, you know, transition more out of the, you know, active constantly touring lifestyle and i know that you have been doing uh or you went to cosmetology school and you know you work at a uh, a shop in san diego um how was the the pivot for you into quote-unquote real life from that perspective was it uh, difficult for you to make that transition or were you excited that you were kind of like flipping the page so to speak to be like okay i done the i did the band thing for a while and um now i'm interested in finding out what what life could look like off the road so to speak yeah, no, I was, I was really ready and excited to do it. Um, it was, it was like, I was about to turn 30 years old. And I just, at the time, um, instruction had broken up. 
And then Artie and I were doing our third band together, a band called Godfire's Man. And um, one of my favorite projects that I've ever been involved with. And we, um, you know, that we were demoing, you know, we were doing like just constantly writing and recording and playing shows. And then the whole major label thing started up again, like with, you know, we were getting courted by Atlantic Records and they were giving us money to demo a bunch of songs. And I just had this moment of like, I'm about to turn 30. I have no skills except for playing music and bartending because I was bartending in the city. And, um, and I was just like, I need to figure something out, you know, because I don't want to keep, uh, I don't want the van anymore. I don't want to sleep on floors anymore. Um, and that's, you know, my, my wife who at the time we were, we were just dating, she, um, had been doing hair for a long time. And I just thought like, I always enjoyed watching her do it. And I just thought like, this is cool. This is something where I can be tattooed. I can, you know, there's so many different avenues you can go down within the industry. Um, and I just thought like, this is something I think I can do. I had no idea how to do any of it. I couldn't hold a hairdryer and a brush to get at the same time. Um, but I was like, I'm just going to give it a shot. And I just signed up. Like I, I think I started cosmetology school, uh, uh, like three days or something before my 30th birthday. <laughs> That's amazing. Cause I, 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 especially here in Southern California, that was something that a lot of, uh, you know, dudes that were involved in the hardcore scene found as a way in because it, it did give the sort of flexibility of schedule. If you built up your own client list to be like, Hey guy, I'm going to be gone for two months. And then, you know, I'll, I'll cut your hair when I get back or whatever. <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's, there's a ton of flexibility and, um, and you're not just stuck to, uh, you know, being behind the chair either. And you can go into education, you can go into, in, into the product world there, you can go into like runway stuff. Um, so there's just so many different things that you can do. Sure. I, I mean, and honestly, it's a literal skill. Like <laughs> right. you, you, once you know how to do that, you know how to do that forever, even if you decide not to use it at one point. Right. And I thought it was like the perfect, um, you know, thing, because it's like, no matter what's going on in the economy, right? Like everyone needs their haircut, right? Yep. There's, that's something, you know, something that's never going away. something that no one can take away from you until COVID happened. And then I was like, oh, actually this kind of sucks because I can't work right now. Yeah, totally. It's, it is recession proof, but it's not pandemic proof. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which many things, as we found out, are not pandemic proof. Right. <laughs> and uh, I know you actually joked about this uh, in another interview I read where your parents were always incredibly, um, or your mom, like you mentioned previously, was always incredibly supportive of your music and you know you pursuing uh, all of the interests that you had from that. W I know you also mentioned the fact that your uh, mom, you know, kind of made fun of you once you started to transition out of like the touring lifestyle and kind of giving up that aspect of your life, even though clearly you've still been involved in music and still care about it. Um, w was that the case where she was like, Oh, Adam, I wish you would still do band stuff. Like what happened? What's, what's happening here? She, no, she wasn't making fun of me. She was like legit mad at me. And <laughs> she, okay. she, she honestly, um, the day I started cosmetology school, like she didn't, um, she didn't like speak to me for like those, those first few days. I, I really think she thought I was making a mistake. She didn't like, this, it, I don't want to make her sound like, you know, whatever, but like, she didn't call to like, wish me like, hey, good luck on your first day or whatever. Like she, I think she was genuinely like mad at me for getting, like she felt like I was giving up on music. 
because I think, you know, she just knows, she knows me better than, you know, anyone. And she just, she knows how much music means to me. And I think that, I don't know, she thought I was just making a mistake, you know, right. but, I, you know but I, but I've been doing this for, you know, I've been doing hair now for 15 years. Um, and, um, she knows and, and, and she obviously, she got over it within that week, but it was just kind of like, it's just funny. I think most parents would be so stoked that their kid is like, you know, kind of giving up on the music or the art thing or whatever. And like trying to like get a career or whatever. And she was the complete opposite. She was pissed off at me. Right. (laughs) It's, I just love that idea because it's the, uh, it's something that, you know, parents are always protective over their children, but just that idea that she felt like you were giving up on something. Yeah, she totally thought I was giving up on it. And um, and I think that really just bummed her out because it was the one thing that she knew that I, um, you know, she was always been so supportive and, um, and you know, your mom just thinks you're the best, right? She just thinks like, she's, you know, my mom was at ABC Norio in the basement at the first Seisha show, you know? And it's just like, and she's still that way. She still comes to shows when they happen. Um, she's still like cheering for me. And um, I love that. Yeah, that's incredible. And uh, with the uh, idea of you playing, you know, music still, I mean, obviously reuniting with many of the the guys that you previously played with in Aerotype 11 in uh, the new project, Attempt Survivors, is it, what keeps you, um, I guess, connected to the scene at large? I mean, I know you've clearly spent a lot of time with it, but, you know, people, quote unquote, age out and then they become disinterested, not because it's you know, a relic of the past, but it's just like, well, I don't necessarily care about this anymore or going to shows or trying to be creative with that. What keeps you connected to that? Um, I just think it's like the most basic thing of, I just still absolutely just love everything about music. It's the same way I was when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old is the same way I'm at 45 years old. Like, just last week, I was at. Uh, I went to two shows in one night. I went, ended up going to see Idols, and then I rushed over to another club to go see Drug Church play. And it's like, I, you know, people think I'm crazy, you know, having two kids and a job and all this stuff, and still going out to do this stuff. But it's just like I just love it so much. So I can't ever imagine a, a life without music in it. Right, just because of the fact that you always want to continue to pursue that you know that style of music because it's just hardwired in you it is yeah just everything from you know trying to like always trying to check out new bands uh to you know me not being able to pass my guitar without picking it up even if i can just play for a few minutes you know it's just something i always have to do it drives um Josh, who is a singer for Attempt Survivors, whenever he comes down to, you know, flies down to San Diego so we can, we can play for a weekend, we'll, we'll drive up to LA and he just will always come and he's like, man, he's like, you always have music on. He's like, you never give your ears a rest. You know, I'm just like, yeah, I don't, I don't need to. I'm just like, always want to listen to something. Like we'll have just played for four hours in a room and then like, I'll get in the car. I mean, I don't do it because I know it kind of drives me crazy and he needs a little bit of like quiet or like a podcast or something. But like, I'll just, I'll automatically, my first instinct is just turn music on. Right. <laughs> and uh, I, I know the last thing I want to hit on was the fact that I know you, you're, you're a father, correct? I am. And uh, that idea of, you know, raising kids with the purview that you have of the, you know, independent music scene and kind of 
being you know anti-authoritarian and kind of pushing against uh, all of the the trappings of what a normal life or normal society would kind of look like how does that inform your approach to uh you know parenting in general because i'm sure you've obviously thought about it through that lens yeah i you know i don't ever want to um i don't want to even though i love music you know i don't ever push that on my kids um i i want them to discover their their love and their passions on their own because that's what was important to me it's like i I picked up guitar because I wanted because I you know I played one once and that was it. It was just like I it's all I wanted to do. So um, I want you know there's enough instruments around the house and in the garage for them to if they have that moment where they're you know drawn to it then then that's what they do. If they never you know they both take piano lessons, but they um, other than that like I don't force them to do anything you know. So I just want them to find whatever it is that they have a passion for. I want them to find that on their own. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, and plus, even if you tried to be like, oh, here's a, you know, here's dad's old bands or, you know, here's a quicksand record or whatever. The kids would be like, yo, this sucks, dad. What are you trying to do? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're straight up like, um, because I've always just played, you know, the music that I want to listen to in the car. Um, so they have heard everything, you know, cause my, cause I just love, you know, so many different types of music. Um, and they're very quick to be like, Oh, like dad, what's this? And then they'll, after a while, like they know all the words and they're singing songs or even when the music's not on, they'll like be singing, uh, you know, like the other day, my son was singing an angel dust song, you know, because he just loves that record. But then there's some records I put on and they're like, oh, turn this off. I hate this. You know, right. they're, they're like no punches pulled. They're very much like, tell me what they like and what they don't like. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is good because that's what a kid should be. Like just the visceral reaction of like, this is good. This is not. Right. But I also don't want to, I don't ever not put on something because I think they're going to hate it. Cause I just want them to like, if they hate it, that's cool. That's one thing. But if, um, I, I don't ever not want to play it for them just because I think they might not like it, you know? Yep, absolutely. It makes total sense. Well, Adam, thanks for hanging out, dude. I really appreciate you letting me uh, ping pong around your uh, musical life and upbringing. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Okay, that was Mr. Adam Marino. And thank you very much for hanging out with me on the podcast. Like I said, check out his band, Attempt Survivors. You will also be able to check out Seisha when they do their reunion shows. If you bought a ticket, if you didn't, then, uh, you know, maybe you'll uh, catch them in 2023 because that looks like how it's happening now. I don't know any secrets, but I'm just letting you know it's probably what's going to happen. <laughs> Anyways, next week I have Chris Simpson from Mineral. I love that I get to say that sentence because I love minerals so much they are a huge band for me and when they did those reunion shows i was just in a pool of my emotions because mineral um that was that was definitely a foundational band for me to listen to music that wasn't just solely punk hardcore streaming stuff it was them texas is the reason and sensefield those were like the foundational bands for me. So the fact that I get to hang out with Chris and it was such a pleasant chat with him. So that's what we got next week. Until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. 
BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.